0: visit bankofamerica.com/bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America NA, copyright 2024.
1: The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer.
2: And I'm Ora Okunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: In lots of markets, electric vehicles are still rolling onto the roads, but demand is clearly cooling. In Britain, it looks to be just about flat. We ask why and what might change to put a charge back in the market.
2: And Shawshank Redemption, the classic jailbreak movie, was never released in China, but many, many people watched the censored film anyway. Now, a new stage performance is finding new resonance. But first...
1: One day before his death, Alexei Navalny appeared in a court hearing by video link from prison, the Polar Wolf penal colony deep in the Arctic, which is as forbidding as it sounds. He stood gaunt but at ease. He smirked, he smiled, he laughed. He joked that authorities should put some more money in his account because he was running low. It was the same easy manner with which he had returned to Russia with real fanfare in 2021, after a poisoning attempt very nearly killed him. He landed, he was arrested, he never knew freedom again, and through it all, he remained mockingly cheery. In the end, there was only one way for President Vladimir Putin to wipe that smile off Mr. Navalny's face. Now the most recognizable opposition leader in Russia is dead and nearly every other prominent opposition politician has either been killed, jailed, or exiled. As international condemnation and finger-wagging spreads, inside Russia, the screws are tightening, even on people who had never before engaged with politics. As the news of Mr. Navalny's death emerged, people took to Russia's streets laying flowers at memorials for previous victims of political repression. Hundreds of people have now been manhandled and arrested. A presidential election is less than a month away. The outcome of that is already written. What becomes of the message Mr. Navalny lived for, died for, left behind, that is less
3: clear. He did not see himself as a martyr. He was perfectly aware of the risks. He knew this was a possibility of both Great likelihood of imprisonment and some quite strong chance of never walking out of that prison.
1: Arkady Ostrovsky is our Russia and Eastern Europe editor.
3: And he had a very, very strong sense of wanting to live and wanting to win. So he didn't walk to his death. What was happening when he flew back in this kind of completely epic way hero returning, you know, Lancelot, whatever you want to call it, returning to slay the dragon was epic. And and it was not just about power. It was not just about political power. It was about fear. In a way, he overcame that fear of death, maybe because he actually had this brush with death and survived it. But I think his attitude to death was, it's not as scary as you all think, because he's actually seen it. I think having been in a coma for several weeks, he's actually had experience of death, which very, very few of us actually have. And therefore, I think he concluded in his head, it's actually, it's not that scary.
1: If indeed he was walking into the maelstrom to come back defiantly, smile on his face, why did Vladimir Putin wait so long then to do what he was ultimately so willing to do? Why now and why not some time between then and
3: now? something that Navalny said, Putin acts proportionate to threat. He doesn't just go and kill people. He kills people when he feels a threat, when he feels danger. And my guess is because I think we are entering a new phase in the war and a new phase in Russian regime. Putin is on the offensive. I think Putin feels that he needs to reassert the that fear that keeps him in power. We've always described this war as being a war on two fronts, a war in Ukraine and a war in Russia. And his advance in Ukraine, I think he felt that this was his advance in Russia. I think it's before the elections. I think it's part paranoia. And the paranoia is very evident now in Putin. And you could see it in, in Tucker Carlson's interview. Whether it was just defiance of everything and it's a big, you know, attack on Ukraine, attack on the West, attack on Russia all at the same time. And the best defense is attacking I don't know why precisely now. I don't think anybody does, actually. But in terms of the logic, it's to strike more fear, maybe because he feels it's weakening. It's to show to the West that he will go all the way, nothing stopping him. He will cross all red lines, so keep away.
1: So if the object here is to strike more fear, both at home and abroad, what does that mean for Russia's opposition? What does it mean for those who would be against Vladimir Putin that their notional, their only plausible leader is now dead?
3: I don't think that Navalny was the only plausible leader. He was certainly the most powerful one, the most charismatic. And the one, importantly, I think he was the one who could bring different parts of Russian society together, liberals, more nationalist leaning I think it leaves them in fear. I think the challenge he presented to Putin is he displayed the lack of fear. He encouraged people to overcome fear. And that is a real challenge because Putin's system runs on fear. It has to have fear in the heart of it. Fear, greed and lies. And Navalny showed that he is not fearful. And that was dangerous. I mean, that that undermined the main premise of Putin's power.
1: Well, that raises the question, though, whether Navalny's death will empower or quieten the opposition that remains. Will they be more fearful or will they only feel more aggrieved and louder and more willing to take risks?
3: It will certainly for now strike more fear. It's not just fear, actually, Jason. Maybe it will pass. But for the past, whatever it has been now, 76 hours, I've been talking to people in Russia and I can't describe to you the sense of darkness and how crushed people are. Of course, they're still grieving. Navalny, as a lot of people in the world actually are, but for now, it's incredibly dark. There is no unqualified opposition to Vladimir Putin out in the streets in Moscow. Politicians are in jail. People are not walking out in protest, down with Putin, because it's an armed state, it's a fascist regime, and they know perfectly well, and, and Putin wants them to know, that he will shoot at the crowd. So walking out with protests will result in beating torture and very possibly death. So what people are doing instead is they're mourning. They're mourning publicly. They're taking flowers to the makeshift memorials that are springing up. They're taking flowers to the memorials for the victims of past repressions in Russia, which were put there in a kind of previous era, if you like. There are a lot of people I think with crestfallen faces and they want to mourn and they want to grieve. This is Far from protest yet, but it is a sense they are expressing their feelings. And of course, there there is a question of Navalny's body. They have not released the body of Navalny. They don't know what to do with it. I think they are still thinking, you know, how not to to turn it into sort of a huge event of his funeral. They understand that, you know, he's dangerous as a myth. He's dangerous as a martyr. So they are delaying that moment.
1: What's the long run of this? Right now it's very hard to say what the very next move is and whether there will be a funeral, I mean, a year from now or so. What is the likely long-term in the history books impact of Mr. Navalny over the course of his whole life?
3: The reason Navalny's death is so crushing is that it crushes this idea that the good wins over the evil. And I think in the long term, It does, because otherwise humanity wouldn't have survived. Um, But in the short term, we just don't know how long the short or medium term is. There can and there probably will be a lot of suffering. In terms of Navalny's legacy, I think that's secure. Uh, I think around the world and Russia, when it will change, will come. And it will come because Putin is not eternal. However much he might want that, he is not eternal. And I think in the time that we can see into the end of his life, once he is gone, there will be change. And I think at that point, when Russia makes a turn, and I do believe that it will make a turn because I think Navalny was right and the the current of history is moving in one direction. You can't stop it and you can't reverse it. I think at that point, Navalny becomes an absolute hero in whose name things are done. Politically, I think Navalny will live. But I don't want, again, to to end with sort of words of pathos because there is an awful finality about somebody's death. And he was a person. He was not a slogan.
1: Navalny was a man for whom you had great respect, perhaps someone you would freely call a friend. How are you doing in the wake of his death?
3: It's hard not because he was just a personal friend and somebody I knew. It's hard because, and I think it's, the feeling is true for a lot of people, is because the kind of character he was and what happened does become a personal loss, if you know what I mean. Seeing extraordinary strength of his wife, Yulia, is support, I think, to everybody. Everybody should be supporting her. In fact, she, with her strength, just like Alexei with his strength, seemed to be holding everybody together.
1: Arkady, thanks very much for your time.
3: Thanks for having me, Jason.
1: In the most recent episode of the subscriber-only Weekend Intelligence... Arkady chronicled the last three years of Alexei Navalny's life, from his poisoning with a nerve agent through to his return to Russia in 2021 and his fateful imprisonment. Have a listen wherever you found today's episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen It's easy to forget that for a good couple of decades there, electric cars were all over the place. Passenger cars, taxis, trucks, battery exchange programs, the works, a little over a hundred years ago. It took quite a few decades of petrol-powered dominance before climate concerns pushed the notion of battery-powered transport back up the agenda, first with hybrids like the Prius, The gas-electric Prius with Hybrid Synergy Drive is here. And then back to all-electric for the mass market. The Nissan Leaf.
4: What if everything ran on gas? Then again, what if everything didn't? The 100% electric, zero gas Nissan Leaf.
1: And of course, Tesla. The
5: Tesla Model S. Motor Trends Car of the Year. A car that may lead other cars in no longer taking from the earth, but accepting from the sun.
1: Getting people to buy them, well, in various markets, that has had its ups and downs, usually with the raising and lowering of government subsidies. Globally, sales are still on the rise, but rising more slowly in Europe and America. And in one country in particular, the growth has altogether stalled.
5: Last year, electric cars' share of all vehicle sales fell for the first time in Britain.
1: Vinjeru Mkandawire is a Britain correspondent for The Economist.
5: The fall between 2022 and 2023 was only a tenth of a percentage point, down to 16.5% from 16.6%. But it's a reflection of what's happening in the wider market. Electric cars have reached an inflection point. Having taken off at huge speed thanks to early adopters and generous government handouts, some of which have since been phased out, electric cars now need to appeal to the mass market, and that won't be easy.
1: So before we start looking into the trend lines here, let's put some numbers to it. How many electric vehicles are on the road in Britain?
5: So Britain registered its millionth electric car in January. That's up from fewer than 4,000 EVs just over a decade ago. That's a lot of progress, so electric car sales are still rising, but it's the slowing pace of growth that's causing apprehension. At the moment, demand is being driven by fleet buyers, such as companies, rather than individuals. And so car makers are reconsidering how quickly motorists might trade in their petrol and diesel cars for electric ones. Policymakers are revising their forecasts too. The Office for Budget Responsibility, which is the government's fiscal watchdog, has lowered its estimate of the portion of new car sales that will be EVs in the coming years. Earlier, they forecast that electric cars would account for 67% of new car sales by 2027. Now it anticipates it will be just 38%.
1: And just so we know, how does Britain compare with the rest of the world when it comes to this?
5: Growth is slowing in Western markets more generally, The number of electric cars sold in America increased by 1.3 percent in the final quarter of 2023, down from 15 percent in the second quarter. With the exception of China, where the uptake has been strong because of cheaper prices, most consumers are still reluctant to make the switch. And this is hitting the car industry, at least in the West. Shares in Tesla have plunged by more than a quarter so far this year, and carmakers are shifting gear slightly. Some are adjusting short-term production targets or delaying new EV models. General Motors, for instance, ditched plans to deliver 400,000 EVs by mid-2024. And this month, Volvo said it would stop funding the Polestar electric car brand. And Hertz, the car rental company, is selling a third of its EV fleet. But even though the slowdown in momentum is global, Britain is still a bit of an outlier compared to other countries. How do you mean? Unlike Britain, the share of electric cars sold in the rest of Europe actually grew last year, albeit more slowly. But in some European countries, it grew quite a lot. Electric car share of sales was up by nearly 4% year on year in Germany and Norway in 2023, and by more than 26% in France. But in Britain, it's shrinking.
1: Well, but why? Why is Britain an outlier then?
5: Well, the biggest problem is Price. Electric cars are still up to 40% more expensive than a petrol or diesel car. Whereas in China, electric cars now cost roughly the same as petrol or diesel cars. Other countries know that the upfront cost of an electric car is still a big issue, so they offer handouts to car buyers. But Britain's government phased out most of these handouts. That includes a £5,000 electric car grant. That's the equivalent of just over $6,300 which was whittled down before it was eventually axed in 2022. And then, about a year ago, Rishi Sunak, Britain's Prime Minister, announced that his government would delay a ban on sales of new petrol and diesel cars from 2030 to 2035.
3: I'm announcing today that we're going to ease the transition to electric vehicles. You'll still be able to buy petrol and diesel cars and vans until 2035.
5: That could slow things down even more.
1: So if the carrot here is gone, the subsidies and the stick of petrol engines leaving the market, that's now more distant. It sounds like it's going to be really tricky to reverse this, this slowing in the uptake.
5: Trade groups and car makers in Britain are calling for tax breaks to get more electric cars on the road. But even if the government doesn't offer any more handouts, there are two reasons for optimism in Britain. The first is competition. So car brands like Tesla are slashing prices. And the average discount on new electric cars reached 10.6% at the end of 2023, up from 4.8% at the start of the year. And an influx of Chinese brands will also boost affordability. The second reason we're feeling quite optimistic of The Economist is the binding government targets for car sales. New laws that kicked in this year require 22% of car makers' sales in Britain to be electric. This share will increase until it reaches 100% in 2035. That certainly isn't reverse gear.
1: Minjo, thank you very much for your time.
5: Thanks for having me.
2: The Shawshank Redemption is 30 years old this year. Based on a novella by Stephen King, it's an unfolding film about life in prison and the bonds between inmates. Red, played by Morgan Freeman, calls himself the only guilty man in Shawshank. After his friend Andy breaks free, Red spends his remaining time locked up pondering guilt and the morality of detention.
4: Sometimes it makes me sad, though, Andy being gone. I have to remind myself that some birds aren't meant to be caged. Their feathers are just too bright. And when they fly away, the part of you that knows it was a sin to lock them up does rejoice.
2: Andy was unjustly prisoned, put away to two life terms and jailed by a corrupt system, which makes it all the more interesting that a new stage performance of the film is running in Beijing.
4: It's a story that, on one level, could be seen as very relevant.
2: Ted Plafka is a China correspondent for The Economist.
4: It's about a corrupt police state, unjustly imprisoned people, and institutionalization of people. And a lot of that is very on the nose for China. But because it's set in a foreign country, and another time, another place, censors have some plausible deniability. It can easily be seen as not relating to China. This takes place in America in the state of Maine in the 1950s and 60s. What could it have to do with China?
2: And Ted, you've seen the show. How was it?
4: The show was really good. It was a very interesting performance. One unique twist was that it was an all-foreign cast, Western actors with very good Mandarin, performing in Mandarin. And it was very moving. The audience was moved. I heard people sobbing at key poignant points. It was one of two shows that were put on in the same week in very prominent Beijing theaters. The Shawshank Redemption adaptation, another one of Les Miserables, the Victor Hugo novel, with similar themes of uh, unjust imprisonment and redemption and freedom. And both of these two performances are potentially very sensitive in China. In fact, Les Miserables came to the attention of censors in 2019 when pro-democracy demonstrators in Hong Kong adapted one of the songs from the musical version of Les Miserables, a song called Do You Hear the People Sing? They took that on as a protest anthem. And of course, that quickly became banned on Chinese search engines and any reference to that song was censored.
2: Well, they banned the song, but somehow they let this performance and Shawshank run.
4: That's right. People involved with both productions told me that censorship of stage productions is somewhat lighter. It's less concern about things going viral. It won't go to millions of people instantaneously. There are several hundred people in a theatre viewing it, it doesn't have the same potential for viral spread as television or internet content. And so they're a little bit looser about things like that.
2: And the film Shawshank Redemption wasn't actually released in China, was it?
4: The film was never released in China officially, but it was very widely viewed on, well, back in the 90s, it was VHS and it was later DVD. Everyone knew the film. In fact, it has ranked number one on one of the top Chinese film rating sites called Douban. For years and years, it has been the top rated film, including up until today. So it's very well known. It was never officially released here, but it was banned as a search term. In 2012, there was a big story about a self-trained lawyer, blind, who was arrested for his human rights activism. And he made a dramatic escape from house arrest, leaving his village on his own, a blind man, left at night and made his way to Beijing and made his way to the U.S. embassy and eventually on to the U.S. A lot of people compared his daring escape to the Shawshank story. Don't want to spoil it for people, but it has been 30 years. So um, there is an escape. The village where this lawyer named Cheng Guangcheng came from was called Dong Shigu. So there was a bit of an Internet meme going around on the Dong Shigu redemption about the story of his escape. And so when that happened in 2012, Shawshank, as a search term, was banned on the Internet. It was censored and and blocked. And Ted, can people in China expect more shows like this? It seems like they might. One of the producers of one of the shows told me that things might be loosening up a little bit for stage performances. Things were shut down. Foreign performances during COVID were non-existent. And COVID aside, there has been a bit of an isolationist mood in China. A lot less exchange, a lot more suspicion of foreign cultural content and political ideas. Chinese censors can let things like this slide. It's set in another country. It's set in another time, another place. And they can say that it's not relevant to China. But there were audience members who saw a lot of relevance. One audience member at the premiere of the Shawshank staging told me, oh, it's very much like China. We have high walls and prison guards everywhere. Of course, you can't help but thinking that China is just like Shawshank prison. So censors may be obtuse about it, but a lot of audience members see very direct relevance.
2: Ted, thank you so much for coming on the show.
4: Always a pleasure. Thank you.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. This week, we're edging toward a grim anniversary, two years since Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. If you're a subscriber to our digital or print editions, you should check out the chat happening this Friday. Our editors take a look at what, if anything, has been achieved and what happens next. Sign up for access at economist.com slash digital event and tune in on Friday, February 23rd at 5 p.m. London time. For now, see you back here tomorrow.